Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Um, Jana, you're, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Awesome. Excellent. Good to see you. Um, you super too. excited. This is, I think, maybe the last week mm-hmm. you formally are with us. Of course, we'll, of course, see you sometime again yeah. uh, on the show. But this has been really fun. And I think Britt mm-hmm. Hartley comes back next week. And uh, I know there's some things you're still sort of working on behind the scenes. And we hope that those will happen. And maybe yeah. there'll be conversations that the three of us can kind of participate in. So I'm super excited. Great. But I'm- from the bottom... Of my heart and the almost awakened audience, thank you very much for uh, filling in for Brit this summer. And uh, I've really enjoyed the conversations that you and I have had. Absolutely, me too, Bill. It's been such a I'm I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come have these conversations with you. Mm. I've really, really enjoyed my time here. So, wow. yep, I'm always available. If Brit needs a week off, you can always call on let's me. Let's do it. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Uh, anyway, the hope life is treating you good, and uh, I'm excited for the conversation that you've organized today. Me too. Me too. We're going to be talking to one of my favorite conversation partners. Um, we're we're talking to Maxine Hanks today. And awesome. Maxine is one of my dear friends and someone who I just really enjoy going deep with. <laughs> and we do it regularly. And, uh, you know, the, the idea for this conversation came out of some of the conversations that we have had. Um, but I wanted to introduce who Maxine is. Um, some people may know the name. Some people may not. Uh, Maxine is a trained chaplain and a mediator. She's studied conflict resolution extensively. Um, She is also a religious studies scholar and uh, very practiced in interfaith ministry. Um, She's had such an interesting life and and such a depth of experience and also as a scholar studying, um, you know, all things religious and spiritual. And, um, and, I, I just think that her she's she is a unique soul in the the depth of wisdom because she's done both she's very studied and also very experienced. So, That's, uh, uh, yeah. Go, no, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So I mean, this oh, conversation. Yeah, a couple. I'll just explain a couple of um, of things about what kind of brought up this conversation of vulnerability. So we're going to be talking about vulnerability with the other. Um, And this came out of conversations that Maxine and I had, first of all, about how difficult it is as human beings for us to have conversations with people who are different than we are. I think it's just something we universally struggle with. Mm -hmm. And um, as we were having that kind of conversation, we also were having a conversation about something that came up actually on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about mysticism. And it was brought up that that's a really, that it's really hard for us to be open, especially when we've been through, um, 
something where we felt duped by religion before, or we've, you know, we've moved to a place where that's been a really hard experience, how hard it is to open ourselves up Mm. to something larger than ourselves. So Maxine, um, as we were talking about this conversation, she, you know, was putting these two things together and saying, okay, we struggle as people to open ourselves up to one another, especially if there is difference. And we really struggle to open ourselves up to something bigger than us. And I just thought that was a really rich framing for our conversation. And that's what we want to do today. Yeah. Vulnerability is, uh, is a topic that I've spent a lot of time kind of figuring out how vulnerable I want to be right in these spaces where there feels like there is the risk of being seen as less than in your tribe, mm-hmm. the risk of being shamed, uh, which mm-hmm. happens from the moment we're little kids. Yeah. I think as we grow up into the second half of life, we're constantly trying to figure out how much of ourselves we show. And so this should be a great conversation. So absolutely. So should we bring Maxine on? Absolutely. All right. Let me uh, get rid of that. Hey there. Hey, Maxine. How are you? I'm good. Just let me know if I should keep my video on or off because of my streaming capabilities or not what yours are. Yeah, yeah. so far, so good. Just a heads yeah. up to the audience. The internet connection uh, at Maxine's home it seemed to be, as we started prep behind the scenes, seemed to be just a little less than we uh, would need to have this run smoothly. So at some point, if it ends up getting sort of blocky, we'll just have Maxine shut off the camera and we'll just finish the conversation with her in audio only. Yeah, just let me know. Yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome, Maxine. It's so great to have you on the show. I'm really excited for this conversation. Both of you. Nice to be here with Jana. Who's yeah. It's it's nice to be here with both of you. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. No worries. So, um, Maxine, I am curious um, what your initial thoughts about this are. We introduced this a little bit about vulnerability to the other, vulnerability to something bigger. Um, And I think this is just part of our human story, right? We've got natural reasons why those things are threatening. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe let's start talking about vulnerability to the other. Exactly. Exactly. Because the other is that is that which we perceive as not being us, you know, that which is not you, that which is different than you, you know, and our perception, at least, of what is not us. And I like the idea of looking at both um, the other as those who are different from you and also the other as that which is bigger than you, because I think we have fears of both. the, the other is that which is different and the other as that which is larger or, or bigger. Because the fear, the basic fear is that we feel unsafe. Um, our sense of self needs to feel safe. And so we want to stick with the known, what we know and what we feel we can rely on and, and count on. And so that which is different from us feels alien and feels unsafe, right? And not only does it feel unsafe because it's different, but it feels like something that could affect us and change us, you know? And our sense of self is our identity. And so we have a tendency to want to protect ourselves, what what we see as ourselves, you know, and and our identity. We want to protect our identity, whatever our identity is today, you know? We don't want to have change imposed on us. We want to feel like we're in control of of our identity and, and whether that identity is going to change or not. And so there's this issue of safety 
safety versus unsafety. I think that's really involved in it, which one more thing I'll say about this, just to introduce it. What that really boils down to is, I think, a fear of our own weakness, our own vulnerability. And this is where vulnerability comes in. Um, because our fear of the other is really about our a fear of our own vulnerability, that okay. that we may we may be affected or changed or you know beyond our desire or our wishes or beyond our control. And so the real question underneath all of this and underneath vulnerability is, um, can you control you? Do you have control over you? This this brings up existential questions like what is the self? And can the self change? And do we have control over that? And do I have control over me? And to what extent do I have control over me? And so it really brings up a lot of existential questions because the other can represent an existential threat to our identity. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I pop that out. I, I often say that our, in order to achieve wellness, we are fighting our own biology. <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? Because yeah. our body thinks we need to close that down yeah. in order to have safety, as you're saying, right? And yet there's something about allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and connect with the other that is good for us. So what what do you see in that? What is What is the good thing about allowing ourselves to be open, to be changed, to be, you know, to, why would we want to be vulnerable? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I love the way Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, mm -hmm. that strength comes from vulnerability. So we need to let go of the fear of the vulnerable because the vulnerable, our vulnerability is what keeps us humble and it opens us up to new knowledge. And that new knowledge is not necessarily threatening or bad. It, it may really help us. It may make us stronger. It may make us more empowered. It may do all these really good things. And so we have to let go of the fear that Vulnerability means that we're only going to be affected in a bad way. It also means that we're open to, to growth and, and greater strength. And, um, and so I thought, I thought I would talk about a few sort of solutions to this problem because um, really oftentimes we're, in for, we're afraid to engage the other you know, we're to even engage it. So what we want to do is protect ourselves and keep it distant. And, and we as human beings, we engage in all kinds of forms of self-protection, really unhealthy forms of self-protection to protect ourselves from that vulnerability to, to change. But we really have to remember that change can be, you know, just as good as bad, and it can be about growth. And so what happens, the problem with our fear of our own vulnerability, which is really the issue, is that um, that leads to a tendency to not only avoid, but to suppress the other and to destroy the other and do battle with the other. And this is where our personal and cultural conflicts come into play and where we really start to harm each other. Um, you know, and in fact, there's so much talk about that right now in the political realm because of all the fear and alienation and polarization. Polarization is a huge result of fear of the other. We polarize and then we start to do battle with each other. And there's a lot of talk right now about the state of society in the United States that we are approaching a point of tensions that could result in kind of civil war and balkanization and all these really awful visions of our, of our country. And so we really desperately need some better 
ways to deal with our fear of the other. And, and the solution is that we need frameworks. We need a framework that we can enter into that allows us to feel safe and still engage the other. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. A framework is something that, that creates safety for both, you know? Because here's the thing the reality is we're different, and the other is part of reality. We can't shut it out, we can't shun it, we can't destroy it. Even when we think we've destroyed the other, we haven't. It's reality. We're all different. The other exists. We're all part of a larger reality. So we have to have frameworks and uh, processes that we can use to learn how to engage the other without feeling a loss of control, a loss of self, uh, a loss of power, and without feeling like we've been destroyed by the other. We have to learn how to engage the other in healthy ways. So we need frameworks for, for doing that which gives us the ability to move beyond our little sense of self or identity and our protected self and move into engagement and relationship and dialogue and communication and collaboration with the other, because we have to be able to do it. We, we have to. And so yeah, we're we've actually really, denying we've really, Sorry. Yeah, yeah we've really lost that, that ability to, um, of, of civility in discourse. And, and I, you and I went to a presentation the other night, one of the points that was made there was that people who follow this and they have some sort of matrix of, 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 um, uh, measuring the, the amount of polarization, the amount of, um, of incivility in public discourse. And they said that on those measures, we are approaching Northern Ireland in, yeah. you know, when was it? The, the 80s and 90s. About 1980. Was, yeah. We're approaching yeah, yeah. the point where the conflict in Northern Ireland was in 1980. That we're, yeah. The measures yeah. that social scientists and political scientists are looking at are saying the U.S. were at that point. Right. Which is, which should be sobering for all of us because yeah. this is not, I, and I guess I just want to say this is about protecting the, the, the self and it has larger ramifications when people stop being able to do that, right? We have these, the ramifications of this can be nationwide, can be global, can be, it can lead to civil war. Like we yeah. can be on the brink of something that big. Yeah. And so it, it, it this, I think this, in, this conversation is so important because yeah. we have to notice internally what's happening or we're just part of the problem, right? And it seems like this is we so... We are creating it. We are creating polarization based on fear. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like this is so based. I mean, this is so evolutionary. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is that for so long, we have been uh, in systems, tribal systems, where anything that threatened us, anything that was different, the other tribe in the next town over, <clears throat> uh, any kind of new thing happening, if, if suddenly... Uh, crops aren't growing as well, whatever it is that's uh, pertinent to our survival, when something shows up different, to be able to sit and go like, oh, like, no big deal, something's different, would have been so, so contradictory to our innate need to survive and to perpetuate and to keep going and to push through. And anybody who's different than us feels really risky, doesn't it? Like when I sit in a conversation with somebody who is 
night and day different from my views. Or when people in this country saw, for instance, the Supreme Court uh, change the things around pro-life and pro-choice recently. I think no matter what side you're on, you felt like, oh, my team's winning or like, oh, my team's in danger. Man, that seems like such a uphill battle to fight against these predispositions in us to to do things the way we did them 100,000 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are you, are you hearing me okay? Am I still coming through okay? Yes. Okay. Or do I need to do I need to uh, go off of the video? Just let me know. I think you're good. Um, okay. There's a little glitch every once in a while, but uh, from our perspective as well as the listeners, it seems to be okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me know because you're kind of cutting out, but I'll go ahead. Just let me know. But yeah, we need, we have, so this is why we have to have larger framework, us to still be us and allow the other to be the other and, and that are enable us to deal with reality because otherwise we're not dealing with reality. Yeah. We're distorting reality. We're, we're harming and suppressing others and we are grossly distorting reality unless we have some frameworks that allow us to be us and the other to be other and to be in the same society. Yeah, I've noticed that, um, and we've talked about this, Maxine, but it, it, it does seem that the more polarized you are, the more extreme you are in your opinions, in my opinion, you are having to distort more of reality or having to not let in some kind of reality. Um, You have to ignore it in order to hold on to your very um, strict way of seeing things. Because I think one of the things we lack is this basic humility that none of us see all of reality. We we all have to have the other in order to see a deeper part of what is, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what are some of these frameworks? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first one you led right to it is Mm. a shift from the subjective to the objective. Mm. And so we have to learn how to make a shift rather than um, we have to learn how to shift, you know, make a shift from a smaller to a larger reality. And from a subjective to a, an objective reality, mm-hmm. it's like going from a one-dimensional point to a two-dimensional line. You know, getting beyond this this solipsistic self point where all we can see is ourself, moving beyond that to another position and getting some perspective, almost like the difference between a point and a line. But but we have to be able to shift away um, to to be able to see more than just our own view. Because if, like you said, if we're only seeing our own view, we're only seeing a small part of the picture. Reality is so much bigger than how much you see or I see. We're just seeing these small little pieces of, of the whole thing. And the thing is, if we learn how to shift instead of struggle, you know, kind of use that as a meme, shift instead of struggle, shift, you know? Like learning how to drive a, a stick shift car when we were teenagers, going from an automatic to a shift, we have to learn how to shift into different gears and different um, kind of levels of, of perspective. And uh, we can still exist as ourselves. you know, we don't have to change really, we, can, we still exist, but 
but we learned how to move from competition to cooperation and learned how to shift from seeing the other as the enemy to seeing the other as community and shift from you know conflict to collaboration and from kind of provincialism to a cosmopolitan view and from shifting from conformity where everybody should agree with us and think the same way we do or we just we can't be in the same space together you know shift from conformity to diversity and and from local to global you know all these shifts from the unitary to the collective you know the single or individual to the collective that's that's an absolutely vital shift otherwise there is no community you know and so part of that is individuation so one so that's one kind of framing i want to offer another framing is of course individuation where you learn to be okay with yourself that you're okay and the other is okay too we're both okay it's okay to be you it's okay for the other to be the way they are and you get to to be you and they get to be them and that's individuation you're able to coexist and be okay with that and this is a huge problem for a lot of people a lot of people just cannot coexist with the other but we have to learn to do that otherwise we're just going to fight and battle and tear each other apart so that's another framing the idea that they're both valid and we can coexist we don't have to eradicate each other just because we have completely different worldviews you know which again like i said it it it's it's human nature to feel an existential threat from that which is not us you know but but we're not animals we've evolved we're human beings with a higher brain we can do this we can we can learn how to be you know we can learn how to be in the same space with somebody who's radically the opposite from us in every way so a couple mm -hmm. of other things agency we have to remember our agency agency is our existence what what gives us human beings you know our power and our existence and our our identity is our agency our ability to choose nobody's you know unless we're thrown in prison nobody's going to take that away you always have agency you always retain the ability to choose choose what you will believe what you will think and how you will behave no one's going to take away your agency unless like i said unless someone imprisoned you in some way and that's empowerment agency is empowerment and so it's important to remember that we are empowered beings. We have a consciousness, you know, and consciousness and agency go together. We, you know, we are conscious beings because we have agency and, and we have, and that agency allows us to behave in conscious ways that are not, you know, unconscious. And so we have to learn how to be able to remember that, to retain our own um, sense of identity and agency no matter what situation we're, we're in. You know, the first book that really influenced me that way was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Jew in a prison camp in Nazi Germany. And he, he came through that experience, he survived and he wrote about it. But he said the people who survived were the ones who retained their own agency, their own self-definition, their own ability to define their own meaning internally. In spite of the fact that they were all imprisoned and being horrifically abused and facing death every day, the ones who survived, he said, were the ones who retained that sense of agency within themselves and their ability to create their own meaning within, regardless of what was happening around them. And, and that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about with agency and empowerment. We can coexist pretty much anywhere if we remember that that, 
that agency is within us to be self-defining and to create our own meaning and our own narrative, which is the, the other framing that comes up, the other framework. Narrative or story is, is how we make sense of reality, how we make sense of our experiences. It's our interpretation. And we are our story. Um, I loved the book uh, by Dan McAdams that I found right after I was excommunicated from the Mormon church back in 1997. And he wrote this book called um, The Stories We Live By, Personal Myths and the Making of the Self. And he basically says, we are our story. The narrative that we construct about ourselves, that is who we are. And, and we always have the power to do that. Nobody can take away your power to create your own narrative and your own story about who you are and what you are and what you believe. Nobody can take that away, just like Viktor Frankl found. And, and so if we want to, if we want to change or grow or evolve, or if we want to deal with something really terribly destructive or painful, we create our own narrative and our own story about that. But we, we get to retain our story. And this is really important to remember when we're talking with people who have a completely opposite view and their point of view would seem to completely obliterate our point of view. They don't get to write your story. They don't get to hijack your narrative. And this is so important. And this leads to other framings I'm going to mention. But you always have control over your story and your narrative. And it's vital to remember that and to let other people have their own narrative and their story so that we aren't trying to write their narrative for them. And we don't let them write our narrative. You don't yeah. let somebody else write your narrative. You don't let them hijack it. This is such a hard one, I think, for people. I, I when I'm in discourse communities, and I and I involve myself in some discourse communities that are pretty polarized. <laughs> like I, and one of the things that I notice more than anything is how much we want to write someone else's story for them. Yep. We yep. really, really do. People, I notice if if I really disagree with somebody and, and I I I state my point of view, the first thing so many people do is to tell me not just about that thing I have disclosed about myself, but to assume 50 other things that they think that means. And then they're yeah. addressing someone that isn't even me. They're addressing yeah. what they think is me. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Really They've just hijacked and rewritten your narrative. Yeah. What's yeah, that? I, I, I often say like, you shouldn't tell someone else's stories. People's okay. stories are sacred. So yeah. um, Janet, you're right. Like same thing in terms of being, you know, sometimes talking openly in this community, those, those kinds of things happen. But hmm. whenever I'm talking to people and they're saying, Hey, like, give me some advice. I'm going through kind of that dark night of the soul. I said, man, be, be your authentic self as much as you feel safe, but step a little into the darkness. And, and then my number two is don't let yeah. anybody tell your sacred story. That's yours. Yeah. Right. yeah. And exactly. it's hard for, for people who have given away their narratives so much. So many of us, I know my yeah. upbringing, I feel like I allowed other people to convince me that yeah. I was yeah. wrong about yeah. my own narrative. Yeah. I would, yeah. I, I, and, and because I did not have a very strong sense of self, I gave that away and let someone else tell me who I was, which caused yeah. a lot of pain. And it, and then oh, it's, yeah. it's the work of maturity to try to take that back and to trust ourselves and to get that, that authority back 
from other people. And what we recognize, and I know I noticed this in myself along the way, I also want to scapegoat people because of the pain that causes. Right. So, so I'm feeling pain. It's all your fault. You won't give me your, my narrative. I have to convince you so that I can take my narrative. Right. And something you right. and I have talked about is that's a losing proposition, right? Yep. Yep. And what I'm hearing you say, Maxine, is we have to make the decision that we're yep. just not going to let anybody do that. And we actually right. do have the power to do that within ourselves. I don't have to defend myself to you yeah, because- even if you are trying to tell me that what I am saying is not true, that can't take it from me if yeah. I am committed to my truth, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. We we have to own our own narrative. And that means taking responsibility for it because it's easy to let others write our narrative for us. That's a lot easier. It but it will, it, will, it will obliterate us and we will live in pain. <laughs> because your, your agency is your existence it's your consciousness your narrative is your way of expressing your existence mm -hmm. your identity you you can't let others write your story and they don't need to and you don't have to and this is the thing people don't understand when we when we live in a culture where people are accustomed to having their narrative or their identity or their story written by others by an authority figure or a parent mm -hmm. or an expert or a husband or a wife you know a spouse um, we, we have to learn to take back our agency and our narrative because it's our responsibility. And we're, we're not going to be happy or healthy if we don't own that responsibility and own our narrative. So if it's been hijacked by others, we have to take it back. If we are hijacking other people's narratives, if we're imposing our narrative on to everybody else, we need to back off. And let people, you know, parents need to back off and let children develop their own narrative because that's their existence. That's their identity. You know, yeah. it's sacred, I, like Bill said. Yeah, I see this in politics all the time because I follow both. I follow some right wing stuff and some left wing stuff because <laughs> I, I always just kind of want to know what's going on out there. Right. Yeah. And one of the I remember a couple months ago, I don't even remember what the issue is. It may have been the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade or it was something like around along those lines, something really mm -hmm. charged. And in within the same day, I saw posts from people on the extreme ends of both that were accusing the other person of truly of being immoral, horrible people. Yeah. And they were they were explaining the other person's viewpoint. Yeah. In ways yeah. that that other person, I guarantee, would not recognize. Right, right, right. So we, and, we do this scapegoating thing where we make someone into something that they're not in order to fight. Right, them. exactly. It's that straw man thing, right? Right. Yeah. It's a straw man. It's a fallacy. Mm -hmm. It's a fallacy. You cannot define someone else for them. You can't. And, and it's interesting because this is what's so interesting about narratives and why clashing narratives feel so threatening, like an existential threat. Because if you are your story and somebody comes along with a different story about who you are, you have to fight for your existence. You have to fight yeah. against the script that right. they're imposing right. on you, right? Well, and, then, yeah. And, How do you yeah. hold your dignity when one side is saying you hate women and the other side is saying you hate babies? And I'm pretty sure that both sides don't hate women or babies. 
Right, right, <laughs> like right. If we really right. take back our humanity in this conversation. Yet that's where right. it all goes, right? It goes right. to this extreme and all we're doing is fighting yeah. for our own dignity rather than actually having a conversation about what we all really value and how to protect one and one another's freedom, which is what we're supposed to be doing in this country. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and we have to we and freedom of speech, right? So yeah. we have to be very ironclad about uh, owning our own narrative. And it's interesting because somebody else might come along with a narrative that we actually like better than ours. And then we're, we can adopt whatever we liked. If we, if somebody else comes up with a perspective of me that I actually like better than the one I had, I'll adopt it. But that's my authority. That's my right. You know, they, I, I can reject any, any narrative that somebody's projecting onto me and I can own whatever I want because we have to remember that it's ours and it's, it's just, it's sacred. Like Bill said, you can't, it, and, and it's a fallacy. We have to point out the fallacy. So whenever someone is hijacking your narrative and rewriting it or using projecting a straw man on you or scapegoating you, you have to stand up and let them know. You have to say, OK, here's what you're doing. And this is a fallacy. And and please yeah. take logic, <laughs> informal logic, <laughs> no steady logic and fallacies up at the U. And um, I was a philosophy major for a while when I first went to the U back in 86. And so I studied both informal and formal logic. And a lot of of how I've been able to maintain control over my my own narrative and not let people rewrite my narrative is because I studied logic and I studied all the fallacies and and what was the you know what was a, a valid argument and what wasn't and and I wish more people would just study logic because I'm amazed every day on TV and in conversations and on the internet and in groups on Facebook I watch people use fallacies they all argue from fallacy and I just think oh please go study please go study informal logic and learn, learn the difference between a valid argument and a fallacy, you know? Well, and study it deeply enough not to misuse the fallacies. I see that all over the place. People are, yeah, people, are accusing people of fallacies that aren't fallacies too. I see that <laughs> too. Yeah. Misusing the, the entire notion of what a fallacy is. Yeah. And that's why we all have to know them because then we can point them out. But yeah. And, and we have so, to know that in ourselves first, right? Yeah. In order for me to point out what's going on, I have to recognize it myself. Right. That's and this gets, to do. it is hard to do. We, yeah. we have to examine our arguments. And in fact, that's, I'm going to get to dialectic in a minute, but as another framing, but we have to examine our own mar arguments and that will lead us right into Socratic dialogue and, and dialectic in a second. But, but also I wanted to say, you and I've talked about this a lot. I like to tell people, sit down and map on a piece of paper, the people in your life who, who have really, really, hurt you who you felt have imposed things narrative on you or a story or a definition or a script that devastated you that wasn't who you were and devastated you and then right on the other side of the paper people who really get you who who really gets you and accepts your narrative and look at that because it's the people it's the people who we give power to their narrative who really harm us and when we we have to look at who we've given our power to and we have to take our power back and realize, okay, I didn't give my power to my church, but I did give my power to my family, you know? Or I didn't give my power to my neighbors, but I did give my power to intellectuals, you know? Who did you give your power of narrative and to define you? And we do that, we get into groups, we get in, you know, in our careers, we belong to professional organizations, or we might teach at a university, or we might be a member of a church, and so it's really easy when you belong to belong to a group 
you know, or a profession or a professional organization to give our, our power of identity to them because we want to belong and we want approval. But we still have to maintain that, that power of identity and narrative against the organization because the organization has its role, we have our role. And, and you can't even let an organization or group of people define you. And so it's, it's a constant, mm-hmm. you know, practice. Yeah, I think about this, you know, when sure, we're young, so. um, it's, it's natural and it's a developmental step to be subsumed by our group, right? Like, I think we, we are all born with needs for authenticity. We're born with needs for belonging. And sometimes those yeah. really do conflict, right? Yeah, they um, do. They some do. ways they conflict more than others, but, yeah. um, but it's, it's necessary and appropriate for a child to give that authority away because, you know, a lot of us don't survive. Yeah, yeah, if I really, yeah. if I, if I'm a two-year-old and I want to run into the middle of the road, I'm really, I really am better served to give my authority away to the adult yeah. who understands that better. And sometimes we get in such a loop right. where we have narratives that are told us that our goodness depends on obedience to someone else. Right. And so what, what is appropriate when we're young, as we mature, yeah. Yeah. can we learn to trust ourselves to be able to take that back. And at that point, when that threatens yeah. our belonging, which is also necessary for our wellness, yeah. that's yeah. when it gets really, really hard. And this, this shift to maturity, to being a mature human being yeah. is painful because it of is. that. Because we're, we have to more, more intentionally balance those things. How do I become authentic? Yeah in front and with of and with you which is yeah. what why Brene's brown brown why Brene brown's yeah. um stuff is so important right because yeah. she's yeah. talking about this very shift how do we be well holding ourselves and also being part of the whole that's her whole braving the wilderness you know, yeah idea, yeah right yeah yeah how to balance the individual and the collective mm-hmm. it's a real challenge and yeah. like i mentioned earlier that's why I mentioned individuation first. Um, mm-hmm. Individuation is learning how to to find to be yourself and be true to you and and take control of your narrative, but in in coexistence and in relationship to others. So yeah. individuation is that is that ability that you know a child grows up and learns to define themselves against or with their parents. But but yeah, to be able to to be self defining and to know also that your path, your position, your identity is always going to be a little different than the group. There's the group identity and the individual identity. And so you have to balance that. And you can't, you have to honor both. Because if you're going to be part of anything, a family, a relationship, a group, a professional guild, you know, anything, you have to be able to work with both your own individual position, perspective, narrative, path, and the group. The group has its own path and narrative and and identity and you have to be able to to work with both and balance that and again that's individuation and but but it honors both because you you know you you've seen some people who want to force a group to conform to that one person the leader or whoever their view and that that disrespects the collective the synergy of the group and at the same time you've seen groups that drown out or suppress the individual difference and and if either one is not honored, if either one is suppressed in favor of the other, you don't have a healthy you don't have a healthy relationship. So yeah, learning to honor both is really important. 
And, and it's so, so hard. Like I, I, I'm, I'm stunned at how complex human beings are. Like, how did we evolve to this point that we need both of those things and they fight each other so desperately? Yeah. It's, it's, it's really kind of some, some kind of cosmic joke. <laughs> it's, well, we have to let go of the belief, the belief that these things are mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's not mutually exclusive to have two people with radically different points of view in the same organization. Yeah. And it's not mutually exclusive for you to be in a different place than where the organization is. You can still coexist. We have this belief, this fight or fight, flight belief that these are mutual, that the other, you know, me and the other are mutually exclusive. And that's not true. You and the other can coexist and still be you and still be the other. And that's yeah. the whole point. You have to have a framework a bigger framework that validates both of you and allows you to coexist without obliterating each other. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Which is really hard. I mean, it, you know, I, one of the, the things that I think has just really ramped up in the last several decades in our country, and I'm sure, we've gone through cycles of this before I wear that, but you know, for me, I'm noticing it in my lifespan <laughs> of yeah. just how dangerous it feels to have other people like one one side of some of the culture culture wars right now you know there are people who are and it's not just in their head they're not just feeling threatened they are literally threatened yeah. you know oh, LGBTQ yeah. people are not safe they're like, you yeah. know there's a lot of that and then on the other side people feel like their identity and their ability to worship or their ability to do whatever is being threatened and everyone sees each other as such a threat which just engages that um you know that that right. safety system and right. and it's really hard to get any of these people to come together right, because right. it it becomes a moral thing really deeply like well, yeah. you, you are literally threatening me so exactly. now i'm justified in violence <laughs> well and that's because that's simply the enactment or the embodiment mm -hmm. of the ideological or mm -hmm. existential threat you know the other poses a, an, an ideological or philosophical or theological or existential threat to our belief, our beliefs. And then that translates, that gets expressed to physical threat. It automatically goes that direction. Because if you, if you feel that your identity and your safety and your, your um, worldview, your view of reality is threatened by a view that, that, you know, is completely the opposite, there's, like I said, an existential threat there. And so we have to learn first that having clashing paradigms and clashing realities is not an existential threat. You retain control over your perspective and your belief and your, your worldview. When it becomes a true existential threat to bodily harm is when we act on those philosophical uh, conflicts and, and want to obl obliterate each other, which is why we absolutely need these frameworks mm -hmm. that enable both to coexist because otherwise we will act on that existential threat and try to destroy each other. That's right. Yeah, for That's sure. Right. So, yeah. So let me mention just, I think three yeah. more and then we'll move on to the other category. Yeah. Go ahead. Did, oh, did you want to say something? Okay. Um, so another thing I wanted to mention, and this, this gets to this is the idea of shifting perspective. Like you're shifting your car. You're going to shift into a different gear. You're going to shift into a different perspective. It's so important to be able to get beyond what you are seeing yourself. 
it's vital to your health, to your relationships, to the health of society. I remember, I love what Joseph Campbell said about, and I've used it so many times, we, we don't really see ourselves or understand ourselves or our own culture, our own identity, our own context until we get completely outside of it and look back and see ourselves from a different perspective. And he said, only then do we really know who we are. And I love that because that offers a framework for, for safety. You know, these are all, these frameworks are trying to create a sense of safety rather than fear that it's okay to get outside of yourself and see yourself from a totally different perspective through someone else's eyes or another culture or another, another context. And I remember a dear friend of mine at, at Harvard, Dan Albright, um, who's no longer with us, but he always used to tell students, you have to get distance on yourself. He was a English and literature professor. And he said, you, you've got to read people, you got to read authors and, and get outside of yourself and get some distance on yourself because otherwise you're just doing this little solipsistic thing that's just, you know, got no perspective. And so he was always urging students to get perspective. And he said, that's the purpose of education, you know, to, to get new perspectives. And so I love both of those. And I think, um, it's 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 not something to be feared because it it actually gives us clearer perspective on ourselves. The more we can kind of get outside of ourselves and get beyond what we what we see or know, um, enables us to actually see more of ourselves and and see see ourselves better. You know. And don't you think it's vital to do that with um, you know we talked about this the other night, like dignity for the other and curiosity for the other. Because yeah, if we yeah, are, yeah. are if we are doing it from a view of I need to prove you wrong, right? I need to. I'm looking for the weakness in your arguments so that yeah. I can pounce. We're not going to be able to. We're never going to get outside ourselves, right? We have to right. do this exploration with an open mind and curiosity, even if it feels distasteful to us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that shift from enemy to community. We have to shift out of seeing the other as the enemy. It's only the enemy if you really believe that they're going to destroy you and you're just too vulnerable. You're not strong enough to withstand that. And that's what you have to work with. You have to work with your vulnerability. But um, but yeah, shifting from seeing others as the enemy to seeing them just as the other. They just have a different point of view. And it's not. it has no control over your point of view unless you choose that you like their point of view better. And, and that's part of the whole issue of disagreement. In fact, that's where I'm going to going next. I'm going to conflict resolution and the dialectic. But yeah, um, it's the most time-honored tradition in Western culture that comes from Socrates, Socratic dialogue. But a dialectic is where two people or two opposite sides engage each other in a thesis and antithesis because they believe that they're going to arrive at the truth better if they really argued it and tested it and tested the premises. And so um, a dialectical method is basically posing and engaging two opposites, two opposite views uh, to try to arrive at, at, a, at a better truth or a bigger truth. And, and this is, you know, Socratic dialogue uh, taught us that, that the, the way to really test, you know, your own perspective is to test it with an opposite perspective, you know, and, and really argue both sides back and forth and, and state the thesis and state the antithesis. And then through a process of reasoning 
and testing both sides, see what you come up with, you know, is the answer because you're going to come up with a better answer. Yeah. And don't you find that people, I, I think some people like really, I, I notice people embrace that idea and then they get into conversation with the other. And then what they're, but what they're doing is they're not open to the antithesis right. of their right. idea, right? So right. they're just there to then use logic to prove you wrong. And right. one of the biggest pieces to this in street epistemology and in all of this is Rappaport's rules, which state that you yeah. have to be able yeah. to explain the other side with dignity, yeah. with so much clarity that that other side with dignity and clarity. So the other side says, I wish I would have said it that way myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, one yeah. of the biggest things we miss. In we that. do miss it, and yet that yeah. comes out of 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 of, of Plato and Socrates. That that yes. that idea comes from them. That's that right. it, you you're not really responding to an argument until you understand what the argument is. You have to understand what the argument really is. Otherwise, you're just doing straw men. You're 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 just arguing from fallacy. Not until you actually understand, truly understand the other argument, can you really then engage it. Exactly, yeah. and you have to have the vulnerability to do it, to go yeah. there, and openness. to really want to understand it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, openness and curiosity. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just this idea that we've been raised to straw man people. We watch political debates on television. Yeah. The idea of steel manning somebody is yeah. feels like it's a new skill set. Only in the last couple of years have I yeah. watched really deeply opposed uh, opinions held by different people entering intentionally into spaces where they're going to steel man each other right. and give the audience the chance to hear both positions presented fairly so that we can yeah. see, as you guys are pointing out, we can see if these ideals or ideas or yeah. positions held hold up to the counter argument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because, and you notice, we all notice how it makes us feel when we tune into an argument on whatever Fox News or CNN or wherever, uh, or, you know, and, and one side is just beating down the other. There isn't a true dialectic there. There, there isn't a real testing. And you notice the difference between that. And, and frankly, it seems like these days on most cable channels, people only want to talk to people who agree with them. And the few times people do want to engage the other side, it does become this beating each other down. Yeah. And yet yeah. when people are actually, if there's a real exchange where people are actually understanding the other point of view and actually engaging it, and then really having a true dialectic, it's a completely different dynamic. And I feel like we're losing that. I mean, I feel like that's a, almost a lost art at this point. And we need to bring that back because otherwise we're, we're not engaging each other. We're only engaging projections and straw men. We are not engaging each other. And the polarization is dangerous. It's dangerous at this point in our culture, in all of our cultures, our political, our, our local cultures, our religious cultures, I, I love what Governor Cox, he's launched this new program called Disagree Better. I love that. He, he gets it. Yeah. I love all the stuff that Governor Cox is doing. That guy has got, he's got the vision of conflict resolution and, and how to actually disagree in a real way that where both sides are trying to understand or see what they're not seeing and arrive at a greater, larger knowledge than, than when they came into the argument because if you haven't learned anything from arguing with someone you weren't there there was no discussion you were just there to to preach and you didn't learn anything 
you know and i and i think and that's this what happens. Con again conflict resolution <laughs> i was just yeah, gonna go say ahead. i i think this starts very uh, early in our lives and within our families. I, I notice so much. I work with a lot of people and a lot of families and their dynamics. And there's so much emotional enmeshment where even as yeah. parents, we feel really threatened by our teenagers who start to develop. And it's a de developmentally normal thing to really disagree with us. We need, you want kids to push back, <laughs> but yeah, we don't yeah. like the way that feels because we haven't learned to do it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, this starts early with allowing our kids to disagree and teaching them how to disagree with us and with their siblings and with other people respectfully. And I, yeah. I just don't think that's a skill we know. It's not a skill that we know. And this leads right to conflict resolution, which I studied and certified in. And I used to mediate cases at juvenile court. And we don't know, we don't know that conflict is good and there's magic in conflict. It's the alchemical formula. It's the reconciliation of opposites. Conflict is good because it helps us understand each other. And if we're afraid of conflict, if we're conflict adverse, if we just want to shut down the other side and not hear it, we're not going to learn. We're going to stay in this very narrow, solipsistic point of view. So we need conflict, but we need to know how to use it to learn and to, to um, actually solve or manage things rather than use conflict to just destroy each other. Conflict is positive when it's used in a positive way. It's, it's necessary, it's sacred. And so conflict resolution is, the premise is basically, you have to have two different sides disagreeing, you know? And each side needs to defend their position because the goal is to try to find some kind of common ground or middle ground in the middle. But you can't find any common ground or middle ground if both sides are not upholding their position. Both sides have to hold their position and define it well and express it well so that each side can see it, really see it, and then engage it. And it's only when both sides are truly engaging the other side, then this magical bridge appears, the bridge that we didn't see, the I call it the invisible bridge, suddenly appears. But we don't get to that point unless we do unless we do two things unless we we hold our own ground but and, and but then also truly see the other and engage the other and then it's magic the magic of conflict is that the invisible bridge common ground appears and it's amazing to, to watch it is it's so hard to get our our bodies to do it <laughs> to allow it but it's so important for us to know these things um, it is. It is. So I want to. I want to get to the other one. Is there anything part else you want to say about that? Because part two is also really, really important. So, can yeah. you set set this up? Why is it important for us to open ourselves up to something bigger than bigger. us? Yeah. yeah. I love what Carl Jung said in reflection. He said, "The height of arrogance is to." Um, assume that anything outside of what you know is not real. And he, he's, he's, he said, you have to be open to, to a larger picture than what you're seeing. And you have to be open to a larger collective than what you're seeing. And, um, but yeah, this, this other, the other is something is what is bigger than us is this fear. It's the fear of engaging a reality or a paradigm 
or a cosmos that's bigger than the one you're leaving. And if you, we, we tend to um, want to stay, again, we want to stay with the known, what we know, what we, what we believe. And so, you know, we have, we have a paradigm or a cosmology uh, that we think this is reality. Like if we're atheist, we think, okay, we're kind of existentialist and, and we're kind of empiricist and we trust science and we trust what can be measured. Um, although that's empiricism, not just atheism is more about, um, you know, there's no, there, there's no God, it's just us, it's all up to us. But if we have a particular paradigm that, that is real for us, it, it's again, it's threatening to think about or to be confronted by a paradigm that is opposite or different from that paradigm. So a theological paradigm, a, you know, a belief in God um, is, is, you know, opposed to an atheist kind of paradigm. But so what we do is we, we want to stay with the known, what we believe in. We don't want to give up the known or what we feel is safe or reliable and enter into something that is the unknown or unreliable or, or could be delusional. We, we don't want to be fooled, especially if we, if we feel that we've been misled by authorities or churches or parents. We, we don't want to get fooled again, you know, like the song says. I won't be fooled again. And, and so we're very guarded and cautious about entering any paradigm or, um, you know, cosmology that, that is different from the one that we feel is, is true, our view of the world, our worldview. And so it's really about worldviews, staying with a worldview that feels safe, reliable versus a worldview that doesn't feel safe or, or reliable at all. And um, the problem problem with that is, I mean, it's, it's a fear of being misled, right? It's a fear of, of being deceived by a false reality or unreliable information or delusion. Critics of religion and, and a lot of atheists and, and rationalists and empiricists, they view mystics, you know, and religious people as deluded, you know, as, as suffering from delusion. And so that's a big conflict, you know, and a lot of the time, um, you know, people who don't believe in religion and who think religion is, is delusion, they consider it mental illness. And they, I see it all the time, you know, um, atheists or critics or, or whatever who don't believe in religion will equate religious belief and religious experience and spirituality. They'll equate that with mental illness and delusion. And, and I think it's really important to recognize the difference between um, mental illness and mysticism. They are not the same. And I love, again, Joseph Campbell has a great quote that I love um, where he, he, he says that the, the mystic and the psychotic swim in the same ocean, but the psychotic drowns and the mystic is, is a swimmer. And, and it's, oh, I love that. Yeah, because they can't, and I and I like acknowledging that it can look like they're swimming in the same ocean, right? Right, right, right. Because I think that's important to to note, you know. Yeah, and it's really, really important to know the difference between religious experience and mental illness. And it it bothers me. I always challenge it whenever an atheist comes along or existentialist comes along. And I was an atheist existentialist for ten years. I mean, I was in that paradigm for ten years. 
And then I kind of evolved into an agnostic paradigm for a number of years. And then I had a spiritual experience that shattered, completely shattered my agnostic paradigm. And ever since then, I've been a mystic. But um, it's so important to, to, to challenge those who want to equate religious experience with mental illness because mental illness is mental illness. It's located in the personality. And mysticism is actually, it's an interior, a spiritual experience. And they're not the same thing and you can't equate them. And what happens is that mental illness will use any belief or any belief system to further itself and to express itself. But that doesn't mean that uh, a person who is mentally ill and who uses Marxism, it doesn't mean that Marxism is mentally ill, you know, or a mentally ill person who, who uses, um, I don't know, Mormonism. It doesn't mean Mormonism is mentally ill, you know, or a mentally ill person who uses Catholicism to further and to, to kind of exacerbate their mental illness doesn't mean Catholicism is mental Ill, mentally ill. It, they are different things and we really have to separate those. But, um, but so this, this fear of entering into a larger paradigm or a larger reality is it's a very real fear because people do want to stay with what's known and what's safe. And so I like, I really like, there's some good work coming out recently that's really interesting. Ian McGilchrist is a psychologist. He's a, a Scottish uh, psychologist who's written two books. One is called um, The Master and His Emissary. And the other book is called The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And I love what he's saying. And a lot of people uh, also, there are a lot of psychologists, a lot of mystics, and a lot of people who are looking at quantum, the quantum in psychology, the quantum in physics, the quantum in medicine and health, who are, are talking about the importance of the, not only the transcendent, but the right-brained and the transcendent and the mystical as, as valid and vital and really needed for health. Anyway, Ian McGilchrist talks about how the, the difference between left brain reasoning and right brain, the way that the left brain and right brain work has translated obviously into our social structures to the point that we have so favored the left brain, which the left brain likes to limit things and, and look at things specifically and, and it looks at things rationally and it, it focuses on math and science and technology and, and it, it, it looks at reductions and processes and the partial, you know, whereas the right brain looks at the bigger, the whole, the, the integrative, the intuitive, the artistic, um, the spiritual, the mythic, the archetypal. And what Ian says in his books, um, which are quite large volumes, I haven't made it through all of them, I've just been delving into them, is that our, our society, both nationally and globally, is suffering from a dominant a domination of left brain thinking and, and left brain processes. And that this has hurt us to the point that we are starved for, for right brain processing on a cultural level, which mm -hmm. involves losing yourself in something bigger than you, entering the mystic, entering myth, entering archetype, entering the, the the integrated and the whole seeing the whole picture rather than focusing on on one part so i think his work is really important he says the hyper rationalist age threatens to undermine the deepest most sacred of our human values which i find really interesting and it's interesting to me that when people leave religion they often go straight to an, a very atheist and very um 
empiricist and, and often very scientific worldview. And that's what's come to dominate our culture and our world because we feel it's safe. We feel like science is reliable, it's measurable, it's literal, it's material, we can trust it, you can bank on it. <laughs> and yet again, quantum physics, quantum work in psychology, the, diff the, the relationship between our beliefs and our health, um, you know, the, the bringing of quantum theory into medicine and healing and health, this is all kind of exploding. You know, all the work on quantum states is exploding the notion of the material reality as being as safe and solid and static as we thought it was. And, and it's starting to really bring in these non-dual notions that actually everything is exist, existing on a continuum. You know, matter and energy start to come together and they affect each other and emotions affect health. And, and so we're getting at a much more quantum view of reality and health and ourselves and and it relates to society. So Ian McGilchrist is saying, we need to move into this right brain quantum view of things and, and so that they're balanced. He's not saying, let's suppress the left brain. He's just saying, we are really unbalanced and it's really hurting us. And there are other people like Gabor Mate, there are other psychologists and, and other um, mystics and writers and philosophers who are talking a lot right now about the the world being in a crisis of myth that we've lost our sense of wonder and the mythic and entering into the mythic and they're saying that that um our focus on the material and on on ourselves as animals fighting for survival and our heavy focus on the material is robbing us of our ability to let go and enter into the mythic and the magical and the archetypal and the transcendent and the spiritual and the mystic. And they're saying that we've reached a crisis of, of loss of the mythic and entering into the mythic. And this is why we crave science fiction and myth like Tolkien and you know, Star Wars. And because we're so hungry to enter into something bigger than us that, that we can find some kind of, of um, larger self that, that will that will that will lift us into something higher than just I'm an animal fighting with all the other animals for food and shelter, you know? Yeah. Can I jump in here for just a second? So I'm going to push back just a touch, Maxine. Yeah, go ahead. When people when people ask, you know, Bill, who, what are you? And again, labels never match. But what I say is I'm an atheist mystic. Right. right. So I try I to walk that. this line. I try to walk this line where I don't believe there's a bearded man in the sky, but I do think that whatever happened 13.8 billion years ago, it expanded into being at least in part me in this moment, right? Like there's yeah, yeah. something bigger than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I do believe that there is religious delusion. Like we yeah. can believe, take for instance, heaven's gate where they believe that aliens were going to come down and pick them up and take right, them right. back to the mothership. <laughs> right, and right. they put, they all put on their Nikes and they ate the po poison pudding and they all died laying in bed. Right. 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 And, and, Often when people belong to uh, unhealthy religious systems, those systems impose absurd beliefs in a way that controls people, not only the people that are in, but it also imparts shame to the people who have left yeah. or stepped yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I, I simply want to note for the audience, I think there yeah. is, I don't, I, I don't think you're saying this either. I just want to make sure I offer kind of a different yeah. view. No, good. I think some times it's perfectly okay to go back to the believers of a system 
yeah. and create boundaries that say right. what you believe to the rest of us seems absurd. Like you're welcome to right. believe it. Right. But right. to right. us, it's absurd. Right. I'm going to use my logical brain and go, that makes absolutely no sense and doesn't hold up. You yeah. don't get to use those absurd beliefs to yeah. impart any harm to me. Yeah, yeah. And okay. and I think folks have a right to sort of stand up for themselves against religious delusion, which does happen every day in all kinds of religious systems. Well, yeah, it it does. And I'm really glad that you said all of that. And it is possible to be an atheist and a mystic. It's possible to be to not believe in God and still have these weird synchronistic or mystic experiences that you can't explain and yet they're they're real. And and I don't mean to to create any kind of hierarchy or privileging because the atheist is still alive in me, you know, and so is the agnostic and so is the theist and so is the mystic. And there are parts of myself that are in dialogue with each other to test, to test my own beliefs as I, you know, go along my path. But yeah, I mean, this is why Campbell said the mystic and the psychotic swim in the same ocean, but the psychotic drowns. Um, anytime you dissociate, you you run the risk of having to discern okay is is this healthy is this not healthy are 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 dissociative and and even dissociation isn't the same thing as mysticism but but they're often equated or or related um but but they're similar because you're you're kind of letting go of your conscious mind and moving into unconscious realms of self or the collective and and so it's very very important to test we always need to test our spiritual experiences or transcendent experiences or dissociative or mystic experiences against reality. Like when I have a dream or a prompting or feel like I've gotten a, a, a mystic or a spiritual bit of, of intelligence or advice, I, I test it. I always go and test it. And, and we have to test our beliefs against civility and social laws and, and what is healthy for a community. So any kind of transcendent or or mystical or religious experience has to be tested against the norms and the laws of a healthy functioning society. You you can't just go off and and create a group delusion and then pull everybody into it uh, without doing great harm. And and there is a lot of delusion. It's it's just that I was trying to say that there's a difference between mystical experience and mental illness. I, my view is that the mentally ill are the ones who are using religious ideas or any other philosophy or idea. They're not always religious. Uh, they, they can be other, all kinds of, uh, I mean, th there can be hippie communes from the 60s that, you know, where some mm -hmm. mentally ill people were really using some of the ideals of the 60s and new age ideals in perverted ways, you know. So a mentally ill person will will use um, whatever belief system or framework is is at their disposal to further their mental illness unless they can get help you know and so they overlap a lot but uh, yeah so yeah. definitely they can coincide I I think so too and I, I love that we're having this conversation of how they coincide right because yeah. I think when I I didn't know what a mystic was before I went and and studied at the living school and that kind of blew my mind um but there is a difference between uh, religious delusion and what we're talking about with mysticism. Right. And and right. I really, I think most people, it's a really hard thing to, to separate those out. Yeah. And one of the things with um, religious delusion 
is that it so frequently devolves into authoritarianism and the authoritarianism yeah. is the real problem. Right. I think authoritarianism is, is the real problem with any kind of economic yeah. uh, framework, any kind of political framework. Most of them can actually work and they have some good and bad and whatever. But when we've seen some of them deteriorate into authoritarian regime, then you know, we hate the whole yeah. system. And yeah. I think the same thing happens with religious experience. I think the yeah. same thing happens with mysticism. And yeah. what we need to be on the lookout for is anyone who is taking whatever their yeah. experience is and imposing it right. in some way on another person. And sometimes it can be from mental illness. Sometimes it can be from from naivete or yeah. not understanding, not being able to see outside yourself and just assuming yeah. that everybody else would benefit from what you're benefiting from. Yeah. I think anytime we're imposing that, it can happen, right? Yeah. But to me, the true right. mystic does not ignore science, does not right. ignore right. Right. what is literal, does right. not try to explain those things away, right? The true mystic is one that is not imposing mysticism, yeah. true mysticism leads us to such a large framework that it includes everything. Yeah. Yeah. It makes room for everything. It doesn't try to stamp things out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right? beautifully said. That's beautifully said because a, a mystic, a true mystic is balancing, you know, the left and right brain. They're bringing in the right brain, the transcendent imbalance with the other, and they're not tossing out the rational mind. That's right. You have to test I test every mystical experience I have. I test it against reality. You have to test it. And, and people in religious communities have to be held accountable and, and evaluated by the group ethics and morals, uh, at least. Um, again, that can get really tricky, but they have to be tested against, you know, social uh, norms of, of what is breaking laws and what isn't breaking a law or what is really harming other people and what isn't harming other people. And the problem with authoritarian uh, authoritarians um, is that they're robbing people of their agency. That's why I talked about agency and narrative being so important um, because not only do you find mental illness and abuse in, in various, not just religious communities, but academic communities and social you know, experimental communities and, you know, you name the community, you'll find the mentally ill there and you'll find authoritarian personalities there who will impose their, their own narrative onto everyone. And we always have to guard against that. We have to guard against any, any mentally ill person or authoritarian person who will take away our agency and narrative and authority. 100%. And I, I have seen like organizations that I really admire that are doing really good work for the mm -hmm. community, even yeah. where the institution starts to fall apart. And you wonder like, what happened there? They were doing such yeah. good work and, you know, yeah. but any, any, any group can fall into this if they yeah. are not aware of that, yeah. of their ego, of the way their personality is perceiving things. And so like, I really want to ask this yeah. question of, yeah why it's so important to to go into kind of a vulnerability with something bigger which mysticism is why is that so important and and what do we gain from it like if i'm really happy in my yeah. very rational right brain or left brain place ref, left brain place of like my structure in the way i see things is is 
perfectly fine. Why would I go through the trouble of making myself vulnerable mm. to something beyond that? What do we gain from it? Yeah, what do we gain from it? And this mm. is what this is what a lot of you know psychologists and philosophers are out there talking about. Now, the ones who are citing a crisis of, of a lack of mythos and spiritual experience and transcendence. What they're saying is that, again, we're stuck in the left brain too much and, and that that's unhealthy, it's unbalanced, that we have a left and a right brain and, and we have a psyche and a body. Psyche means soul. The psyche is the Greek word for soul. Whether you believe in a spirit or a transcendent self that exists after this life or not, your psyche is different than your body. You have these two selves at the very least and you're thinking. And, and what they're all saying is that we need to be balanced in our left and right brain processes, both as individuals and as a society. We need to be able to enter into something bigger than us. Like Jung said, you know, and Campbell has talked about with the power of myth, because when you enter, when you can enter and, and, um, Tolkien and Lewis debated this all the time, you know, they talked about the power of mythopoeia and the importance of having a myth that is powerful and enlightening and inspiring that you can enter into. Um, because then you're entering into something larger than just your own limited little physical human existence. And, and it gives you an opportunity to interact with archetypes and mythic, you know, realms, you know, that are, whether it's just, whether it's myth or whether it's spirituality, it's, it's allowing you to enter into a larger dimension of yourself, the interior doorway to your own subconscious and, and what Jung would also call the collective unconscious, but it's entering into something more than just the conscious self. And by doing that, we find all kinds of things in ourself, our shadow, and we find our own subconscious. And it's a, it's a way of being able to, um, parts of yourself can interact with something larger, something archetypal to kind of process. It's how we process things. We do this all the time. We go to movies. There's a lot of work on, on uh, film theory about how film is the most powerful art form because when you enter into a theater and you're looking at a screen and it's dark and you're seeing these archetypal images and the myth playing out on the screen, you're able to enter into it. And by entering into that mythic construct, you're able to interact with parts of your own subconscious and you will have an aha moment. You'll have a religious experience. You'll have a moment in a, in a movie that just decimates you and you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't know I was carrying that for 40 years. And you'll find yourself sobbing in the movie theater. You know, <laughs> I found myself doing that. I don't know if you have, but we, we need constructs and myth and paradigms that are bigger than us so that we can, we can, interact with them and interact with our own subconscious and and know ourselves better and bring forth more of what's been stuffed inside of us that we didn't know was there and also to be part of something to be part of something bigger than you are a sense of community a sense of belonging to something bigger than just you or your family or your house you know to to enter into um a sense of self that is that is archetypal or is um, grander, you know, is mythic, a mythic mm -hmm. sense of self. And so, uh, you know, all of the writers from, gosh, the medieval period and clear back to the Greeks and, and to the present day, they all, they all talk about the importance of myth and mythos mm -hmm. and how important it is to, to be able to access that just, just 
even just to process things that you wouldn't be able to process normally, you know, in daily life. Yeah. Do you think that's related? Like I, I, I can't imagine a world without artists, without poets, without creativity. When we're, when we're in this very dualistic, it's all right, it's wrong. It's this, yeah, it's that. Yeah, I know what it yeah, is. Yeah. That, that kind of uh, brain or conversation or anything else doesn't lend itself to this creativity. Like we have to be able to have a third way breakthrough somehow. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and we, would, we wouldn't have advances in science if people in science were just dualistic thinkers. They have to be able to imagine and right. risk and be vulnerable to being wrong, right? Like, you know, that you yeah, have to yeah, be willing yeah. to fail 10,000 times to find the next breakthrough, right? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting mm -hmm. how many scientists felt like they had a breakthrough through a mystical experience. I mean, yeah. I, you know, you, you see that with, with uh, a, a number of people, Einstein, and um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. You were you were on yeah, a roll. Yeah. I think I interrupted. Yeah. You. Like I just I can't even imagine. And and I love what you're saying about the the way I heard this talked about at the Living School was that we so many of us are skimming along the surface of our lives, being that animal that is just reacting in our bodies to threat and to and yeah. how we're dealing with each other. Rather rather than yeah. having those moments that. I called mystical <laughs> in a couple of weeks ago when we discussed this, of touching into that depth, touching into what is big. Yeah. And that kind of experience is fleeting in our modern world where we have so much going on. We don't know how to be quiet. We don't know how to sit with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we are, many of us, and I think this is what so many of the authors and the philosophers you were you were talking about are getting to is yeah. we are suffering from a sense of depth deprivation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depth, both the depths of our own subconscious, things we haven't even discovered in ourselves. And if you believe in what Jung says, the collective unconscious, but then also that the cosmic, you know, to to access something that's truly cosmic to have an experience of yourself in relationship to the larger cosmos. This is how civilization began with calendars and with studying the stars, a need for, for human beings to somehow touch the infinite and touch the cosmic and develop some relationship with the stars. So they start mapping the stars and they start naming the constellations and then, then they develop a calendar and then, you know, and it just goes on from there. A, a, a sense mm -hmm. of connection to the cosmic and finding yourself there. Mm -hmm. And and these, you know, whether it's through astronomy or art or film or music or or fiction or you know myth, um, it's a way of entering into something that's larger than you, but but you find yourself there. You're not dwarfed yeah. or diminished by it. You you find a grander, larger dimension of yourself. You know, and, and mystics would say you're accessing the spiritual, the cosmic self beyond the human body. Whereas, you know, you don't have to be a mystic. You can be a psychologist who maybe doesn't believe in maybe a, a conscious existence after death who will say, you know, you're still accessing uh, a collective human experience that we all share that is common to all human beings that 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 connects us all in something bigger than us. And it can just be the collective human 
experience, the, the experience that all women have had in having a baby, giving birth, you know, or the experience that, that, uh, that many men have had in going to war and facing this enemy coming over the hill, you know, experiences that we've all had, or many people have had that they can share as a way of entering into a collective experience that's bigger, bigger than you. And then to enter it vicariously through film and books is another way we, we process who we are. We search for our identity. We process experiences through these myths and archetypes and paradigms that, that because we need them to understand who we are as human beings, things that we might never experience in our daily, you know, human life, but we can experience it through a, a mystical experience or by taking a hallucinogenic, you know, by trying mushrooms you know, or something, you know, anything that helps us access something beyond our normal waking consciousness so that we can begin to access a larger dimension of ourselves and, and, um, and explore that. This is the power of story, right? It's the power of listening. Every time I hear another human being and really listen to their story of who they are, it opens up something else in me. Yeah, um, yeah. And and we recognize that we all are part of this big unconscious collective. It's what mystical experience does. You know, I've, I've heard ha Sam Harris say this, who I, I, I don't know if, how he would describe himself, but I'm guessing it's something along the lines of a mystical atheist as well, <laughs> an atheist, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I've heard him describe the experience of being human as like with all of this, this uh, narrative we have going on in our heads about ourselves all the time. It's like walking around with this really not very nice, a lot of times, incessant voice that's, that's uh, oppressive, following us around all day, every day, you know, telling us who we are and who other people are and what. And I'm just, I'm just struck by how when we can silence those voices when we can just yeah. allow ourselves to be when we can allow ourselves to be who we are when we can allow yeah. other people to be who they are when we can be open and vulnerable it, there is a richness that comes yeah. to our lives that actually yeah. supports us through all of this infighting that we have to do it actually supports us when we are part of something when we allow ourselves to be part of something bigger it supports us in facing the other who is different. Yeah. Oh yeah. Be beautifully said. And it makes us feel connected. It tends to help dissolve these polarizations and alienations where we feel completely different from someone else. There's nothing in common. When we start to discover our common humanity and our common collective experiences, we feel a all of a sudden we feel connected. We feel a relationship and, and fears and conflicts drop. And we realize these are brothers and sisters. This is my common human family. These are not my enemies, you know, because we have a shared experience. There's something yeah. in, com in common there. Yeah. And so yeah. entering, entering the larger aspects or dimensions of our experience as human beings and of society helps us to connect to each other. 100%. I've been changed more by hearing people tell me the experiences of their lives that led them to their opinion far more than ever hearing just them download their opinion to me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right? 
Isn't that powerful? That's a powerful truth that when we share our vulnerabilities and share our struggles, the things we have in common that as human beings and our fears and, and our spiritual experiences, our transcendent experiences, yeah, we, we get out of that, that realm of trying to convince somebody else to believe or think the way that we do. That's Instead right. of fighting over beliefs, entering right. into a shared common experience. That's right. The, the thought that comes up, and this is so off track, but I think it'll drive the point home. Um, I've gotten together with friends before and we'll, we'll just make a night of it and we'll watch a stand-up comedian, right? So Dave Chappelle or whoever. Mm-hmm. And the comedian will tell jokes and everyone laughs at the same moments, right? Like a, comed- a good comedian, the whole room is laughing. Yeah. But then after the thing was over, as we started talking about some of the jokes, everybody had different reasons for why they were laughing in that moment. Good comedians <laughs> seem to strike a chord with multiple kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. And and I think you guys are hitting on it, which the mystic seems to make room for everyone to have their individual experience. Yeah. And there's also some value on the collective agreement of what's being experienced here. Yeah. And and you sort of have to make room for both. Anybody who wants to control the narrative completely is unhealthy. And a room full of a hundred people who are completely diversified isn't going to get anywhere either. Yeah. There has to be some way of building middle ground where, hey, I see this different than you, but there's also places where we can find agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Really well said, Bill. And, and like you said, a true mystic understands that different people have different experiences. I love, you know, William James book, the the varieties of religious experience. I've wanted to write a sequel called the varieties of mystical experience because I've had so many different types of experiences and other people I know have had such different experiences than I've had. And I'm just intrigued by the wonder of it all because we have different experiences we enter the mystery we enter the unknown we enter the depths of ourselves and we have different experiences we can all go to the same movie and come out with a completely different experience and argue about it you know we can we can all take the same painkiller have a completely different experience one time i think jenna and i were comparing our experiences with what was it hydrocodone or something after surgery I loved it. Didn't you hate it? It was horrible. Yeah. I mean, we have really different experiences uh, of, of life and, and, but also of, of myth and archetype and stories and movies and transcendent experiences, because what we're doing is we're finding ourselves there. We're finding some new part of ourselves there and we're coming away with wonder or tears or, you know, and, and, and we can all go to that movie or that comedian and have this incredibly deep experience and come out. And like you said, Bill, we've each had a different aha. We've each had a different moment that just grabbed us, but we were all able to go in and, and access a deeper self there in Mm -hmm. in our own unique ways. And some of those mystical experiences, I think we kind of tend to think, well, they're all just lovely and beautiful and, you know, welcoming. (laughs) But I think when we really let ourselves be open to that, it can also be shattering. Because it shatters a piece of our identity, right? When we allow ourselves to be bigger. And so I can see why we resist it. Because it hurts. It hurts to make ourselves bigger. It it an aha moment mm-hmm. is a shattering. It's it a, a shattering. shattering. It it shatters 
the known self, the self you thought you were, or the relationship you thought you had? How often do we hit a really bad day where somebody who we thought was our friend for 20 years, we realize, oh my gosh, we're completely at odds. We don't even like each other. I mean, it, it you know, having a, having an aha moment is a shattering experience and it can be shattering in a good way and it can be shattering in a really hard and painful way because it brings a larger perspective beyond what you knew and that can be completely destabilizing yep very well i could talk about this for three days i love these kinds of conversations and i'm so grateful for you maxine being on with us today to talk about these really amazing subjects um I'm just wondering if either of you like have any parting words of, you know, summing up some of what this is to be vulnerable um, before mm. we close things out. Mm. You mind if I go first, go Maxine, that way you can get yeah. the, you can get the last word. Um, I, I, all my life, I wanted to belong. I wanted to feel like I was okay and acceptable. And on the first half of life, I did that by compromising huge pieces of myself to the point where I wasn't really belonging. I was fitting in. And it, there came a moment, maybe five to eight years ago, where I just said, I'm going to start testing the waters and sharing myself vulnerably, who I am, what I think, what are the thoughts that run through my head that maybe feel like it's risky to say. And every time I did it, it seemed like the universe was going like, yeah, see, that works. Be vulnerable. And so my two cents to anybody who's listening is if you're afraid to be you, you're only being an idea of you to get people to be okay with you. And, and, and that's not real. And, and my two cents is to step out into the darkness and just start being a little more vulnerable. Again, as Brene Brown says, you, you got to know that the space is sort of worth the risk. You have to have some trust built up, but you also have to step further than maybe the trust shows itself to be and, yeah. and just take a chance and be vulnerable. And my hunch is that for most people, most of the time being vulnerable works out beautifully. Yeah. Um, when you take those calculated risk and my life has been just exponentially better and full of me being content with myself because I know that I'm sharing who I really am. And if people like it or don't like it, I don't care because I'm feeling better about being able to be me. And hence, wherever I'm safe to be me for the first time ever, I belong. And I think it's really a human need. And too often we're, we're fitting in rather than belonging. And the difference is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. mm. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I really love that and love what Brene Brown says about all of that. I think it's just important to remember, I guess the thing I always come back to is there, there is a always a kind of safety in your own existence and your own consciousness. You always have the power to choose and decide and define and interpret what you're experiencing. And so you can risk and be vulnerable and you can be shattered. You can feel devastated and destroyed. And I have more than once in my life, but you always have this amazing, what I would call divine, but other people would just call human consciousness and agency and ability to interpret what has happened to you. 
And you are the one who makes the meaning. You are the one who decides what it means and what you're going to do with it. And that's always there. No one can take that from you unless you let them, unless you give up your own agency. And so, you know, it's it's there for you and, and life will shatter you. <laughs> and, and you have that amazing power of consciousness that we've, whatever, evolved as human beings or we brought with us as spiritual beings or both, but we have that power within us that no one can take away and you you will make your meaning and your interpretation and 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 that will be the thing that determines the result of what happens to you that's that's really the determining factor that that says how this is going to go so you even no matter how devastating the shattering may be or the end of a relationship or the end of your health as you've known it or whatever, no matter how shattering it is, you, you have retained that, that agency and power of meaning making. And that determines the result of, of what you, what you do with it and where you go. So you, you never lose that. And I, that that's what I've held on to in my life through all the, changes and ups and downs and um i just i hold on to my agency and my my narrative my ability to make narrative and my ability to change my narrative and mm-hmm. and how changing my narrative changes how i feel and how i live my life beautifully said um i just want to thank you for coming on maxine and talking about this and just Thank you personally for being such a a wise presence in my life. You've been so enormously helpful for me along my path. And just knowing that you have experienced and tasted so many of these different positions in your life. And and one of the things I'm hearing in what you just said in summing up and, and what I've experienced with you, it's given me the confidence to take these steps because I know that there will be a place of safety. If I let go of the one that I'm, that I have one always appears. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how that happens. (laughs) Right. But it does. It's that alchemical thing you're talking about. But if we take that leap of faith to try on something new, to imagine, to, to enter something bigger, something different, whatever, I, I've I've always experienced being held in that, and it's because of people like you in my life, and people like Bill, mm-hmm. and people that are that are open enough to hold all of the stuff mm-hmm. I bring. So just so grateful for both of you and um, for for fellow travelers. Yeah, fellow travelers, both of you. Well, ditto to both of you. You've both been a big, 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 big part of my journey, and I remember. A time in 2012 and 2013 when I was trying to find my way back into the church and Bill was there facilitating me and helping me. (laughs) Interestingly enough, Bill's a facilitator for a lot of people, a lot of people. And he he helped me. Yeah, he helped me find my courage to speak at fair. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and Bill just is there for a lot of people. And you, Jana, you were there for so many people facilitating. And both of you are very committed to making it be okay for people to be who they are. And that's, that's, 
Mm -hmm. uh, just, just so vital. Yeah. Amen. Well, awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, folks, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, Check us out at almostawaken.org. You can thank Jana. If you, if you send a donation, we're sending the time that she was here. We're, we're sending some of those funds her way and paying her for, for the time that she spent and the energy she spent to put these together. So go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button, send a few bucks to the podcast and, uh, just deeply appreciate Jana putting this conversation together. Maxine, thanks for your voice and and for the time that you've spent uh, gaining experience in this world that you could be in this moment sharing uh, with us a very wise and grounded view. Oh, sure. It's been great. And I'm just grateful that you have this platform. I love this program that Britt launched and that you two are, are facilitating. I just think there's such a need. I tell Jana this all the time. There's such a need for places where we can talk about spirituality and transcendence and things outside of any religious group is yeah. so important this is it so awesome hopefully folks uh, hopefully folks are enjoying it but thanks again for the conversation sure anytime okay take it easy bye everybody this has been another almost awakened episode Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.